As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, yes, here we are. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. The Women's Euros, match days one and two on our agenda today. I'm Ali Maxwell and Michael Cox is with me, who is the Athletic Football Tactics writer. Uh, But, Michael, given the distances travelled this week, on loan, I'm saying, to National Rail, really putting in the work this week. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad. Uh, my Monday consisted of nine train journeys, um, if you could, if you include the tube as a train journey, which I think for the purposes of this I am. But yeah, it's been good so far. I've gone to a couple of grounds I haven't been to before, Sheffield United and Rotherham. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, last night down at Brighton was quite incredible, actually. First mm. half was just... Uh, England played brilliantly, I thought, helped by a really disorganised Norwegian backline. But it was a great occasion to be at. It looked and sounded incredible and historic night. Very jealous that you were there. It was the culmination of, what was it, four games you went to last week? As you mentioned, uh, Rotherham, Sheffield, Brentford Community Stadium and uh, and the Amex at, at Brighton as well. There must have been times where you kind of, must have been hard to know where you actually were at, at one point. You must have thought to yourself, this could be Rotherham or anywhere, you know. <laughs> Sheffield or or Hove, Brighton, Rotherham or anywhere and something, something Hounslow. Um, Sorry, one of those things that you you write down uh, and and you know you shouldn't say, but if you don't say it, you'll never be able to continue with your life. Um, Also with us, and thank you for the chuckles uh, to the kind and caring Mark Carey. How are you, my friend? Very well. Thank you. Yeah, very much enjoyed that reference. Um, <laughs> and very much enjoyed the the game, the England game. Unbelievable, record-breaking game. I wasn't able to to watch it live. I wasn't as fortunate as Michael to to do so, but saw it on the television, and it was just it was just a fantastic game. To the extent where the replays couldn't always have the full replay because there was another wave of attack. <laughs> it was that relentless. I love that. That's how you know. That's how you know it really is relentless. I think we're all um, feeling pretty intoxicated by a mixture of hemp and mead this morning uh, and that's where we'll start um, because the women's euros has, has gathered pace 
the Lionesses impress us in Sussex and um, a match day one recap and match day two games to watch coming up. But we have to start with England 8, Norway 0. The first side in European Championship history that covers both the men and women's Euros history to score seven goals in a single game. Uh, England then added another for good measure. Uh, And Michael, of course, you were there. I'd say England were around eight under par on the night, wouldn't you? Very rare to see that sort of performance and that sort of goal scoring. Uh, how was it unfolding in front of your eyes? Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite incredible to watch. I think on the, the last pod we did, we spoke about Norway and I said I had concerns about their defence, particularly the centre-back pairing. Um, I didn't expect it to be that bad. They just didn't work as a unit. You know, they, they got dragged apart by England's wingers, particularly Julie Blackstab, the left-back, who's more of a midfielder, really was just pulled so far out to the touchline. And inside, Maria Thoris-Dottir was just holding her position rather than kind of, you know, moving across to keep distances between the players. It was, to me, that felt like quite an obvious issue. But England played very well. I mean, I think they did two things particularly well. One, they regained the ball very high up, as they did a couple of times in the first game. And second, yeah, they stretched the play. The fullbacks are dragged wide, and then there's space in the channel, which, um, which Stanway... And Kirby have exploited really well in both the first two games. So, yeah, I, I mean, 6-0 at half-time, 8-0 at full-time. It did get a bit silly, to be honest, but England were, were fantastic. I mean, yeah, I was losing count of the, the sheer number of shots that they had throughout the game as well, but did look back at it, 25 shots in total, which is ridiculous. Um, Though that was the second highest in the tournament um, so far, not the highest. Spain's 32 shots against Finland but I think as much as anything it's the not just the quantity of shots but the sheer quality of the shot so I looked at the xg per shot so the average quality of a given shot and it was the highest of any game so far in the tournament so it was 0.28 xg per shot so essentially the the average quality of their shots had a 28% chance of resulting in a goal which was quite ludicrous and it obviously passes the eye test as well because there were so many shots that were in and around the six yard box just walking it in almost which not all of them going in as well I think there were a couple of chances that maybe Ella Toon plays one over the bar and I think there was a couple I've lost count there's just so many different ones but um, for wider context the league average xg per shot in the WSL last season was 0.1 so just a 10% chance of an average shot going in. So it shows just how high the quality of chances that England created, not just the quantity. Absolutely sliced through them uh, at will. Uh, I mean, the first notable for me, Michael, was an hour before kickoff. Team News announced off the back of of our last pod, I'm sitting here smugly saying to my in-laws, uh, the thing about Serena Wiegmann is she doesn't have a, a starting 11 as such. She's got a squad of 23 and, and very much interchangeable. So we can expect to see some different names in this lineup. Absolutely not. Pulled the wool over all of our eyes. Unchanged uh, for this game. Clearly the right call, but was it a surprise for you sitting in the ground? Yeah, I thought she might bring a couple of players in. I thought at left back she would probably play a you know a natural defender instead of Rachel Daly and maybe thought Ellen White would be left out um, just because uh, Russo is really knocking on the door. But I didn't think she'd change the, the Williamson thing and put her in midfield. I, I think that would be a surprise after the way that they played in the first game. So yeah, that was a little bit of a surprise that it was unchanged. But yeah, we can expect a lot of changes for the uh, Northern Ireland game, I suspect. Mm. England went one up after a, an excellently taken penalty from Georgia Stanway, but 
controversially awarded, I think it's fair to say. Um, I don't personally think that uh, uh, audio content discussing refereeing decisions is particularly compelling. So a quick game of pen or no pen, Michael? Well, I had to look this up. I feel like Susie Dent saying that in Dictionary Corner, but there's a few, if you look at the laws, there's a few things where it's, if a player attempts to do things, so Mm. it's like kicks or attempts to kick, strikes or attempts to strike, trips or attempts to trip. I think what what she did, Thomas Dottier, I think she attempted to pull her back, but didn't pull her back. Yeah. But under holding an opponent, there's no mention of attempting. So... I'd say so in, in terms of tripping or kicking, that's one of those ones we can all imagine where if a defender sticks their leg out, doesn't get the ball and the player falls over the leg without making contact with it, there's always a bit of debate as to if that's a dive or not. And I tend to fall a- across the, the moment of saying, well, if they had not jumped over it in order to miss it, they would have just kicked the leg, tripped over it, it would have been a foul. And and that's more or less what that rule covers, right? But what you're suggesting is in terms of holding or, or pulling or tugging, uh, it's not as, as sort of specific as that. Seems to be the case. I mean, I don't know whether they did it with that thinking in mind. I mean, there's bites in there. If he bites someone, that's a foul. But there's nothing about attempting <laughs> to bite someone. So wow. I don't know how far you can take it. Um, Mark, clearly Norway were, were blown away by England in that first half. Were there any particular areas of the pitch or, or any particular methods of attack for England that stood out over the others as being particularly effective? Yeah, I think Michael mentioned it before. I just think the relentless pressing from the front, I think it was just so much energy, so much aggression. Um, again, I looked into the numbers and, and England won the ball back in the attacking third 13 times in total, which again, wasn't the highest of the, the tournament so far, but right up there, it was the fourth highest. Um, but they just, yeah, they just kept winning the ball back so high up and prevented Norway from from working the ball into to more advanced areas. I think we spoke about it in the last podcast of just how threatening their, their attack is. And what's key is obviously rather than trying to defend those good players, is just cut them off at the source in, in the first instance and don't allow them to get on the ball. And that's what England were doing so well. And again, as Michael said, their Norway's defence was um, makeshift, shall we say. It wasn't their sort of... Not everyone was in the, their most favoured position, shall we say. So I think that it was it was mainly just that aggression from the front. And that's how quite a lot of the, the goals or certainly a lot of the chances came about. Well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and historic night for England, but... Norway feeling as low as you can imagine after such a chastening defeat. We'll pick the bones out of their record loss next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So we'll talk about England's individuals shortly, but Michael, a lot of people are focusing on just how 
all over the place Norway were. And I don't choose to openly praise you often on this podcast because I, I personally don't think it's the, the way to get the best out of you. I don't think that's what you respond to personally. But in the preview, as you've already brought up, um, you did make a point of saying that, that Norway had this sort of awkward fit in terms of defensive personnel and profile and potentially would be playing players uh, who, who play as fullbacks for their club, as centre-backs and as midfielders or wingers in those fullback positions. Uh, I saw an interesting tweet from women's football journalist Amy Ruskai last night that said, you know, this is the kind of tactic that works fine when you're expecting to dominate, brackets like against Northern Ireland, where Norway played very well, but it's so risky when you're not and when you're up against specifically wingers like Mead and like Hemp. They just had no answer for the movement, did they? Yeah, I just thought the centre-backs looked like they didn't really know how to play that position, to be honest. And I must say, I looked up Thoris Tortilla and she'd actually played more centre-back than I'd realised for Manchester United this year. Um, I remember from her Chelsea days where she was usually playing it right back. But yeah, they just they just didn't defend properly. Um, basics of that, I mean, I saw some people saying, oh, they didn't press England high up. And that is true, but that's not why you can see the eight goals. I mean, usually you, you don't press because you want to, you know, stay, stay solid and, and stay compact. And they didn't do that at all. I mean, it, it was a, a wretched performance, really, from a team who, you know, maybe not one of the favourites. But, I mean, I read an interview with the Switzerland manager on our site um, that Charlotte Harper did, and he was asked who he thought the favourite was. And he went for Norway. So, yeah, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be defending like that, really. I, I think one of the, the main things about Hemp and, and Mead, obviously they had a good game in the, the first game against Austria, but you know we know how skillful and fast um, Hemp is. We know how skillful, and to be honest, faster than I realised um, Mead is as well. But I think what they both did really well, which culminated in a couple of the goals, is just how well they arrived at the back post or just in the six-yard area from wide, from when the other was, was maybe crossing. So... The, the hemp goal um, from Mead and the Mead goal from the hemp cross. I think Mead followed up in, um, I think it was her hat-trick goal. There's so many goals, I'm trying to remember. But the Mead follow-up goal for her hat-trick in the, the second half as well. All getting into central areas from wide. And I thought that was a real skill. Obviously, Ellen White had a really good game as well. But it was a really good, clear tactic or clear approach from both of the wide players to get into the, the six-yard box and, and get on the end of those crosses because England were just doing it repeatedly. And, and obviously, it's a great effect. I've been really enjoying some of the punditry that we've seen uh, for these games and particularly some of the insight and some of the unfiltered insight of Jonas Eideval, who's the Arsenal women's head coach, uh, particularly struck by, you know, given how little coaches and players tend to openly criticise each other or their peers on, on public platforms. At half-time, very strong in, in criticising the Norway coach, Martin Sjögren, for, in his eyes, not reacting to what was happening. You know, a clear dominance from England early on, clear gaps being exploited or matchups being exploited. And Eideval gave him quite a lot of stick, Michael, for not responding and changing shape and trying to plug those gaps and doing what was needed. I also sometimes think people make it sound easier than it probably is in the moment. Where did you fall on, on that particular discussion? Yeah, obviously I didn't see the discussion because I was at the game, but he's an interesting guy, Eideval, and I think he's done a pretty good job at Arsenal. And I mean, I mean, you got to criticise it. If they're 6-0 down at half-time in a game everyone said was going to be quite tight, I mean, you, <laughs> you can't really not criticise hmm. them, really. So, yeah, I didn't see it, but 
I think I would probably back what he was, uh, what it sounds like he was saying. I think the thing as well is that I don't know entirely how many times Norway have played a back three, you know, in the, the lead up to this and sort of historically. But if you're maybe having to plug the gap and maybe go through a back three or a back five in this case, because England were just having so much joy, would it be better or worse to do that if Norway themselves are just so unfamiliar with that approach would it actually then just completely tip the balance you know the other way that being said if they are five nil down as you say really they're just trying to stop the rot a little bit they're not really going to get back into the game but I just wonder how much the dynamic of the whole team shifting based on a system that's completely reactive and they've never played it before would that be all that productive or would it I don't know I'm not entirely sure, but it clearly needed something needed to change, whether it was even just personnel of just changing, just subbing someone off. I just don't know whether the system change would have helped them to get back into the game. I don't know. And of course, uh, on occasions, if an opposition is playing quite that well, there's maybe only so much you can do. Uh, Michael, you didn't see Jonas Eidval's punditry because you were at the Amex. What you did see that we might not have seen was uh, even pre-game in the warm-up, I think, um, keeping an eye on England and had a sense that this might be a special performance. Like like they'd heard words like unconvincing and under par from the first game, the one they won against <laughs> Austria, uh, and were keen to, to put that right. Yeah, yeah, particularly under par, I'm sure they objected <laughs> to. Yeah, I, I, I was actually I was just watching quite closely in warm up, and their shooting was just brilliant. I mean, there was a spell of about they were just doing standard shooting drills, you know, getting the ball from a coach, turning, firing. There was a spell of about 15 shots in a row that were absolutely nailed into the top corner. Ellen White in particular was absolutely on it. Which yeah, I did I did kind of make a mental note of. Um, and did, you, did you write a note felt... saying seem unlikely to underperform XG as they did in game one? <laughs> Something like that. I mean, it's uh, yeah. Maybe I would have forgotten it if this had been a nil-nil. <laughs> but now it was. Now it was an eight-nil. It does feel quite uh, quite a bit more relevant. It seems frivolous to to make you pick a player of the match, but uh, Beth Mead, the obvious choice, having scored a hat trick outside of Mead, who would have pushed her close on that front for you, Michael? Um, I think there was a few. I mean, I guess it with an eight nil has to be. I, I've really liked Stanway in this tournament so far. It's only two games in, obviously, but she was a player. I wasn't quite sure there was going to be a role for her in the team. I thought maybe they would use Williamson midfield alongside. Walsh and then have Kirby as the number 10 but I think in the first game her and Bright were the best players and yeah she's just played really well she's she understands the system she's really good at making those runs into the inside right channel um, obviously scored the penalty as well um, so yeah she'd be up there but I mean there were a few this this does look a very cohesive England side I think yeah with, when you win 8-0 it's for me I'm going straight to the the attacking players and I know that yeah Mead you have to, to say obviously Hemp had a good game but I think Ellen White was fantastic in all facets of her attacking game obviously scoring goals but also the way that she chased down so so well I know that she's key to to the sort of the trigger of the the press as well and it was it was Beth Mead and um, White together sort of pressing uh, for the for White's first goal I think it was so I think it was an all-round centre-forward performance from from Ellen White so I think she'd be in in with a shout as well. And particularly in the face of, of people both before the first game and after the first game, um, questioning whether she would start in this game, questioning whether either her fitness or her, her sort of um, aptitude for the match uh, would have seen her in the starting lineup. She was. She justified it once again. Well, well Gemma Davison, who's part of the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, she wants you to look beyond the attacking players, beyond the goal scorers. Uh, and she wanted to flag up the omnipotent Kira Walsh on that pod earlier today. 
I have to credit, I know Beth Mead scored a hat-trick, she was phenomenal, but I have to credit Kira Walsh because I, I thought she ran the show tonight. I thought her ability to spray the ball left and right and, and get Hemp and Mead on the ball. And I think they, they were a lot better with, with finding Fran Kirby a lot quicker today and, and her release time on the ball was was, was top quality. So um, just all over the pitch, I, I just apart from the Beth Mead hat-trick, I can't, I can't pick the best player on the pitch tonight. <laughs> it was a bit like that, wasn't it? So I think Gemma there summing up the fact that every player in an England shirt realistically on Monday night contributed to this relentless performance, whether they were playing in attacking midfield or or defensive roles. Quite frankly, more match analysis on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. And you can hear more as well tomorrow from Lindsay, Kate and Carrie Dunn as well on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. That episode tomorrow's uh, Wednesdays will include a special interview with Jordan Nobbs as well so don't miss that make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic as well for all the magnificent coverage of the tournament this is The Athletic Football Tactics podcast we're going to leave behind and stop basking in the glory of England 8 Norway nil. in our second and final part we're going to work through the rest of the groups looking back at match day one and ahead to the second round of fixtures so stay with us for that Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. So, Michael, in the preview, when when we zoomed out and looked at each group individually, overall, I got a sense from you that you weren't expecting in the group stages a huge amount of shock results. And after match day one, would it be fair to say that there were no real surprises in terms of results? That's a good question because the two surprises have been that in two games between two good sides, there's been a really big scoreline, Italy-France and the game last night. But I don't think we've had an underdog victory yet, have we? I can't think of any game where the less fancied side has won. No, I can't think of one. The the closest, I guess, was... Uh, Portugal 2, Switzerland 2, I believe, just, just looking at the, the pre-match odds, the probability for that one, Switzerland w- were favoured, albeit not as heavily as some of the other matches. So I guess that would be sort of the closest that we came to uh, the, the so-called stronger team not winning. Um, so, so let's work through it. Well, yeah, and just another thing to say, I think if we're looking for kind of outsiders to get through, I mean, Portugal and Switzerland are the two outsiders in Group C and they drew with each other. And then Iceland and Belgium are the two outsiders in Group D and they drew with each other. So it's almost like they've, they haven't they have got the results really that would uh, lend themselves to, uh, you know, yeah, causing that's an a upset good point, in, isn't in it? terms of getting through. If you want an upset, you want one of those sides to get three points and then they pro- might only need one more. 
But the draw seems to have counted against them, I would say. That's right, isn't it? It's sort of beat, you know, if you let's say you're the, the, the third most fancied team, beat the worst team comfortably, nick a draw against the second best team uh, and hope that, that over, you know, even if you lose to the, the, the strongest side that you, you go through on goal difference, they've not helped themselves there. In Group B, we saw the most goals within a group within the first round. And that they mostly came from Spain and Germany. Um, strong sides in this group. They both started off with a four-goal haul. Uh, which of those two do you think looked most convincing? How did they do things in these first games, Michael? I must admit, I didn't see uh, all of the Spain game because I was at the Germany game. Um, but I thought Germany were really good against a Denmark side who, I suppose, a little bit like Norway or Italy, were, were heavily beaten, but are, are no mugs. You know, it was a very, very good Germany side. I think their movement and their interplay, particularly down the right, was very impressive. Um, Spain, I think, had a, a pretty gentle start to the competition um, against Finland. I say a gentle start. Of course, they actually had a disastrous start in the game itself because they conceded in the first minute. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they're clearly the two sides to beat in that group. And uh, I'm going along to Brentford tonight to see them against one another. And that, well, the, whoever wins that, if there is a winner, uh, will win the group. And the loser, you suspect will be up against England in the next round. I think it will be an interesting game to to see that. It's a slight difference in in styles because I think Germany are so good in in their transition, also winning the ball back really high as they, they did against Denmark and Spain. A lot like the men's team are so possession dominant. They had 76% of the ball against Finland, which was the highest in a game so far. So weren't massively tested overall, as, as Michael says. So it'll be interesting to see just stylistically, you know, how they the two match up. Because if Germany are going to maximise their strength in transition, then they need to have the, or get the ball from Spain. And Spain are so good at keeping the ball. So whether there's going to be a, you know, who's going to blink first on that one, I think will be really interesting to see. It sounds like the perfect tactical matchup as as well as being the two strongest teams in the division, Michael. If if you want from a neutral perspective, a team that can hurt someone like Spain who are likely to have the ball for most of the game. You want a team who thrive in transition and, you know, are above average from set pieces as well. It feels like a great game of cat and mouse, this one. Yeah, I might have to give uh, Adam Hurry a shout for the his adjudication panel about your use of the word division there, Ali. I, I can't have that. <laughs> Group, absolutely. Division, no. Um, but it's yeah, like it's, an, you know, but it's like a GCSE English essay. You don't want to use the same word <laughs> more than thirty-four times in a half an hour podcast. So, would you, just, you would you use league <laughs> pool? <laughs> at least, pool. at least, I didn't say pool. Pool, pool. I, I'd accept that's old school. It's a bit um, rugby. It's a bit rugby. That. But yeah, I mean, it should be a really good game tonight. I think maybe this will be the last of the great group games in terms of being the two sides you know the two big sides up against each other and there's a big prize on offer you know win the group if you win this game and you avoid England which on the basis of last night's performance you absolutely want to get Norway probably Norway rather than England um, and yeah Mark, Mark I think categorizes the styles well I think it's probably in keeping with how the the men's teams played probably 10 years ago and for most of the last decade Germany very good at transitions a little bit more speed about them Spain I think actually without Puteas maybe become even more Spanish, if you like, because Pateas is a player who accelerates the play, does her own thing, can kind of just dribble past players. Whereas I think without her, they're a bit more hold on to the ball. So yeah, I think I think tonight should be a really good game and a good ground for it as well. I think Brentford uh, was really just impressed with the whole atmosphere for the first game because um, that's varied a lot. There's been some games with a lot of empty seats, but I don't think we'll have many of them tonight. 
And who would England prefer to play in the second round? I, I really don't know. I would think I'm just about to go Germany, just because I think the game might be played a little bit more um, to England's liking. I can imagine if Spain just dominated possession against England for a long period, there's maybe some cracks in the defence that we haven't, basically haven't really been tested yet. And I just wonder about England if they're under the cosh for long periods. But it's, it's a tough it's a tough call between those two and it will be a, a bit gutting, I think, for England to get the second place team in this group because they both look really good. In Group C, uh, match day one saw Netherlands against Sweden, which was the, the standout game of the group uh, it, it could feasibly some said have been a fixture for the final uh, and it was also one of the four games that you went to Michael won all uh, the final score tell me what stood out here really interesting tactically for me the most interesting tactical game so far because there was a question mark about the two sides systems Sweden I think in particular um, I mean they were without Stina Blackstinius their main striker and partly as a result of that Peter Gerhardsen used uh, three players in defence, used a 3-4-3, which I think is really interesting because it it did make some logic, uh, sorry, it did make some sense against a a, a Dutch side that kind of pressed with two players, so you've got three to play around them, and that's what he said after the game. But I wonder whether he would have done it if Blackstinius was fit because, you know, if you've got all four of your attackers fit, I'm not sure which one of them you leave out. Um, So that was interesting, and then he switched system later on. And the, the Dutch, I thought, were really poor in the first half, in part because they had a couple of injury problems in defence, and I think that really affected them. But they changed things at half-time, switched van der Donk and Gilles Roud, and, and Roud was much better at getting beyond Miedemar in the second half, which I think Miedemar likes. And then they made another change for the final 15 minutes, where they moved Miedemar to a number 10 position, which is the one she's kind of been playing for Arsenal the second half of this season. Um, and added some more pace to the team, so it was. Inter- I didn't think either side were that good, but it was interesting to see how they responded to each other. And I must say, it's also one of the most interesting press conferences I've ever been to afterwards because it was just obviously full of Dutch journalists and Swedish journalists, and they all asked mainly in English, uh, and they all asked just really in-depth tactical questions. It's really interesting. The manager just responded at length and. Yeah, every question was like, why did you play this formation? Why do you play this player? Why do you make those subs? There was nothing about the newsy side of things. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Coxian utopia. Uh, I I imagine you, you know, made sure that you sort of represented uh, English style football journalists well by asking some sort of question about Blackstenius and Miedemar and, you know, how their, you know, club relationship would have impacted this game, even with Blackstenius on the bench and just, just, just dangling for a quote. You know, I was going to ask a question, but everything was covered. I I, I, I had nothing left to ask. And from my perspective, there's no higher phrase than that. You make it sound as if you were kind of, you were like the intern or just shadowing. You're just there to shadow, yeah. just just there to learn. Well, it was a combination of just the content, but also, as you would expect for the Dutch and the Swedes, you know, everything or most stuff was in English and everyone's English was just absolutely flawless. So I really enjoyed all of it. <laughs> um, sensational. I mean, I mean, just just one on, on Netherlands, because from the preview, uh, you kind of piqued my interest by suggesting that at their best, they could be magical to watch going forward. But at the other end, could equally be very leaky. Uh, Sweden, a pretty tough test going forward, even without Black Stenius. How did the Dutch defence stand up to that? I think they looked really nervous in the first half, to be honest, but they were affected by a bizarre incident when they were defending a free kick, I think, where 
the goalkeeper came and basically clattered into two of her teammates who I think all needed treatment. Um, so yeah, they, they had some issues in that respect. I mean, they're, they're now without Van Vienendal, the goalkeeper, uh, and their captain as well. She's out of the tournament through injury. So that's a, a major issue. But I thought they actually looked better when Dominique Janssen had to go into centre-back because of injury and a substitution. She, uh, she started left-back, went back into centre-back, which I think is a position she prefers, although she can play in midfield as well. And she's, um, I mean, very composed on the ball and was just very good at playing through the lines. So yeah, I assume they might well start with her in centre-back for the for the second game. And also give a... Should give a word to uh, Van Domzela, the reserve goalkeeper, who's only playing in a second ever international game at a time when the, the Dutch were really panicking, I thought, in that first half. Um, they really needed half time, but she was excellent. I think particularly when it came to claiming crosses, she was very good. They've got Portugal and Switzerland, respectively. Sweden up against Portugal, Netherlands up against uh, Switzerland. If this goes to form, Sweden and Netherlands will, will take three points each. Was there anything from either side in that game that makes you fancy an upset here? No, I, I think Sweden and the Netherlands will be the ones to go through. Obviously, the fact that they drew means it could come down to goals, goal difference. Um, so yeah, I, I think they'll both get seven points from this group, to be honest. And it, yeah, will come down to who scores the most, which could well be the Netherlands with me to Mark front. Mark, in Group D... Wow, possibly the most eye-catching display of match day one came from France, who who absolutely thumped Italy. Uh, and in the first half, in doing so, set a record that lasted all of, what, less than 48 hours. Uh, yeah, well, I think there was two records set in that in that game at that time. Um, one was for Grace Giro, um scoring uh, three goals in the, the first half. Uh, so before half-time, the first player to do so in the tournament's history. Um, and then, yeah, scoring five goals in a half um, against Italy. And at the time, yeah, it was it was a record for the competition, thumped the next day by England. But um, I think up until that point, I'd probably say that Germany had probably had the best performance of the tournament so far. And then when France played, and we, we knew and we said that if it clicks for France, they can be devastating. And it just looked like... I said, oh, okay, this is this is the, what it's like to be the favourites. They they were just so electric. Um, I think the second half of the the game almost doesn't count because a bit like the the England game last night, it was the the, the game was done. Like they would have probably shaken hands on at half time and just said, let's leave it there. So I don't think we can really say that you know take too much from the second half. But they were so electric in that that first half, just so. On top of what they were doing, they were so fast, they were so um, yeah, energetic, um, and Italy didn't really have too much of an answer to them. They they played better in the second half, as you would expect. I don't think they could have got much worse, but uh, yeah, a, a record-breaking... Uh, well, the record that was kept was Grace Giro's first half hat-trick, the first player to do so. The other record, five goals in the first half, the first time that had happened in the Euros competition, uh, broken the next night. Uh, Michael, it, it does feel like we went from... France, semicolon, the team to beat, question mark, to France, the team to beat. Yeah, I think what France did really well um, was just stretching the play and their wingers were exceptional. I mean, uh, Delphine Cascarino uh, from the left was was really good going down the outside or indeed driving inside and scoring that long range goal. And uh, Diani down the right was right in front of me and just, yeah, Quick feet is the the phrase that springs to mind. Um, and they did well with the overlaps from the fullbacks as well. But yeah, on paper, France looked 
looked dangerous down the flanks and that was absolutely where they did all their damage. They were excellent. And should give a shout out to Katoto as well. I mean, she's a goal scorer, brilliant goal scorer, 26 goals and 31 caps. But I thought she linked play brilliantly here, uh, particularly the goal, uh, probably the pick of the goals that was scored by uh, Gioro when she went through and rounded the goalkeeper. Just that kind of, again, almost like Miedemar, linking players mm. as well as she can score goals. In terms of attacking with width, We've spoken about it with England. We've spoken about it with France. The two sort of eye-catching displays, you'd say, in the first week or so of the tournament. Would that also be, if I asked you, any key tactical themes or footballing themes, Michael, from the tournament so far? Is it the star wide forwards getting on the ball in, in dangerous areas almost at will so far? Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that actually the women's players seem better at than men's players, and I expect there's a reason for this, is... The wingers always provide a goal-scoring threat at the far post. Every time you see a winger drive inside and play the ball across the six-yard box, the other wing is always on hand there to turn it into the far post. That was obviously a key uh, part of England's strategy. I expect it's because the counter-attacks are a little bit slower and therefore there's more time for, for players to get up and support. But, you know, you, there are some men's players. I mean, I almost want to show some videos of this to like Marcus Rashford, who just doesn't get into those positions and doesn't score those kind of goals. But... Yeah, it seems like there's been quite a lot of um, just tap-ins and, and really high XG chances with those yeah. balls played across the six-yard box. Well, just going back to Delphine Cascarino, who who thrived for France, a bit of a mad one in that you hear the name Cascarino. I've gone on her Wikipedia page and there has to be a line on her wiki page which says she's not related to Tony Cascarino, <laughs> although is often asked if she is. And you start feeling a bit bad and then... This is quite, quite uh, this is just a bizarre coincidence. Tony Cascarino, in the year and the years before she was born, was playing in France. First for Marseille in 94 to 96, then 109 league games over a four-year period for Nancy, during which time Delphine Cascarino was born. So not very much not related, but it, it's not as obscene to suggest as it might originally feel. Yeah, well, on a similar note, uh, there's a very uh, talented young Brighton a uh, women's centre-back called Maya Letizia, <laughs> who's from Guernsey and who is supposedly not related to Matt Letizia, despite the name and the place of birth. And I understand there's a reason, that, you know, these days why you wouldn't want to be known as being related <laughs> to Matt Letizia. But I'm just, how far do you have to go back in the family tree before there's some connection? Um, uh, just in terms of Group D, all eyes on, on France, really, against Belgium in match day two and whether they can match their performance against Italy. But, but how about the Italians? Because for all that I enjoyed France's attacking play, I was like visibly upset at some of the Italian defending as well and, and their inability to clear their lines at times. Um, how under pressure are they as supposedly the second strongest team in this group up against Iceland, Michael, who, as we know, might nick a nil-nil. <laughs> yeah, the, the defending was really bad. The fullbacks were exposed, vulnerable to one-on-ones, and the centre-backs and goalkeeper just couldn't deal with the balls into the box. Yeah, it was a big disappointment from Italy. But I think they did show in the second half that, I mean, I was quite impressed with their fight, really. I mean, I, I mean, I said this, I did the um, women's football podcast uh, the Athletic Women's Football Podcast this day and said the same thing but it was almost like you know when you're 5-0 down in like a school game and your captain's just like right forget about it just win the second half <laughs> and they won the second half 1-0 and and they did show I thought quite a lot of courage in terms of how they attacked I mean the, the left back Boatin who had a shocking first half created the goal just by suddenly overlapping 
are really pushing forward and, and crossing for um, a good-headed finish from Piemonte. Um, I think they will bounce back. I would still have Italy to get out of this group, actually, despite being 5-0 down at half-time in their opening one. But like I said, I don't think the draw has done the other two sides in this group any favours. Um, and I think Italy will start as favourite against both, uh, both of them. And in case we don't get round to previewing this one by the time we record our next episode, let's go back to Group A, where they've already played two games, of course. Uh, Norway versus Austria. Michael has to stand out here. They're both on three points. It's something of a, a straight shootout. Uh, who do you fancy in that one based on what you've seen? Well, I mean, after last night, it's tough to, it's tough to back Norway. I, I don't know. I mean, that'll be a real contrast of styles. I think Austria have been quite cautious and, and look decent on the break. Um, but maybe they'll look to put more pressure on the Norwegian backline. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you have to say Austria just because the draw will favour them because it goes on head-to-head and then goal difference. And at the moment, Austria have got a six advantage in terms of goal difference, which is quite major, isn't it? So maybe maybe we'll just favour Austria, actually, because Norway was so shambolic last night. Yeah, fair point. Mark, before we go, any impressive individual performances that you've not got around to mentioning on the pod so far? I think it's yeah, it's hard to look beyond the the hat tricks of of Grace Giuro and and Beth Mead respectively. But um, if I could have a, a best half performance, I don't know whether Michael agrees, but I thought Miedemar. I know that I've got an obsession with with Miedemar, but I thought her second half performance against Sweden was was really fantastic. I think that she was probably the difference maker in getting the Netherlands back into. It, I'd say I know that they did have a tactical shift, as Michael said, but. Um, that step over as well, just on that, along that touchline, was just brilliant. So uh, I thought if we were to have a second half individual performance, making my own category, I'd give it to, to Vivid Miedemar. Well, thank you both. Really enjoying your coverage, both written and on the pod uh, of the Women's Euro Championships. It's a pleasure to chat through it with you. Um, Michael, just on the point of the athletic site, um, you are one of the football tactics writers for The Athletic. And on this very note, they have been bolstering their ranks in, in recent weeks. A couple of new signings in terms of tactics and analysis. A great news for fans of well, this sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. We've got two new tactics writers on board. I think we advertised for one position and we ended up signing two. Um, a great transfer window. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Ahmed Walid has been on this podcast before, a couple of years ago, talking about the Champions League final. And he's very good, does some great... Uh, breakdowns of individual matches and also a guy called Liam Tham who you probably won't know in journalism terms because he's been working as an analyst at the academy at Brighton but he's already done a couple of really good articles as well so yeah there's going to be more analysis than ever on the site this year uh, this season which is great especially uh, ahead of the world cup and uh, hopefully they'll feature on the podcast as well that is what we like to hear freshening things up make sure you're subscribed to the athletic if somehow you aren't already theathletic.com forward slash tactics is your best place to go you'll get a juicy offer for your annual subscription there as well as i mentioned earlier please make sure you're subscribed not just to this podcast feed but also the athletic women's football podcast feed tomorrow for example you'll hear a special interview with jordan knobs you'll hear from Lindsay, Kate and Carrie Dunn as well as we continue our coverage of the Women's European Championships which we hope you are enjoying and we look forward to bring you an episode in just a couple of days time so thank you for listening to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast and we'll talk again soon The Athletic Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot 
Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.